As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking today with Keith Shelton. Keith was awarded a bachelor's degree in English from Midwestern State University at Wichita Falls and his master's degree in journalism right here at the University of North Texas in 1972. Keith has been involved with newspapers for 23 years, serving as executive editor and managing editor of the Denton Record Chronicle, a reporter for the Dallas Times-Herald, as well as working on newspapers in Lawton, Oklahoma, and Wichita Falls, Texas. And he has been a faculty member of UNT's School of Journalism for 23 years. Keith has also been a member of the Board of Directors for the Freedom of Information Foundation of Texas, past president of the Press Club of Dallas and the Press Club of Dallas Foundation, a member of the Texas Supreme Court Task Force on Judicial Ethics, and a member of the OLLI faculty. In addition, Keith is also a veteran, having served with the U.S. Army Signal Corps in Germany. Thank you for your service, Keith, and welcome. Thank you. So good to have you here. Glad to be here. I understand that you were a Dallas Times-Herald city government reporter and political writer, and that you rode in President John F. Kennedy's motorcade that fateful day in Dallas, on November 22, 1963, and were a few vehicles behind Kennedy's motorcade in the press bus when he was assassinated. Oh my goodness, can you describe that day for us in Dealey Plaza? Yes, I had been traveling with President Kennedy. I covered him in San Antonio, Houston, Fort Worth, and Dallas. In Fort Worth, I had gotten a copy of the speech that he was going to make at noon in Dallas. And I filed a copy of that speech and a story based on that speech. When we got to Dallas, I was in the traveling press bus, which was several vehicles behind. There's a one-block jog north on the motorcade route. I was on that one-block jog north, so I was at ground level and heard the shots. What did you think when you heard the shots? Did you know they were shots? I did because I'd been in the Army, but... Others thought maybe it was a backfire. At ground level, we knew how many shots and where they came from. All right, there's a question. 
where they came from. Yeah. My photographer saw them, the rifle sticking out the window. <gasps> oh, no. Some of us yelled at the driver to follow the president's car, and others yelled at him to stop so we could see what happened. And it, there wasn't any question. They, they wouldn't let us stop. But one of the problems was that there was a decline down into the underpass, and the shots reverberated. So people thought they heard them from different places in different directions. But at ground level, we could hear clearly how many and where they came from. And where did you hear them come from? The sixth floor of the school book depository. We tried to follow the president to see what had happened. Later, we found out that his car hit 95 miles an hour on the freeway. In any kind of motorcade, the Secret Service's practices in advance to the nearest hospital. So anywhere on the motorcade route, they know how to get to the hospital. So they knew how to get to Parkland. Well, I went to the trade bar, which is where he was supposed to be going. And when we saw that his car wasn't there, we knew something had happened. They made an announcement that the president had been delayed. Then they made an announcement the president had been shot. And then finally they announced that the president had died. Everybody got up and left. And I wanted to talk to some of the Dallas people. And I started toward them. And the Secret Service man stopped me and said, Sir, would you go this way? We're being very careful now. And what were they being careful about? Anybody approaching the president or... Or any of the dignitaries? Any of the dignitaries, or, dignitaries, yes. Okay. When you say that your photographer saw the rifle pointed out of the window? Yes. And I guess I mean, it wasn't the days of cell phones. Nobody could call the police and say, no. we see that. But I guess other people saw that rifle too, right? I don't know. Of course, he was questioned later. He wasn't quick enough to get a picture because we were moving. One thing I noticed was that the presidential seal was on the podium, and it disappeared oh, how very sad. fast. I called the office and got a ride back downtown to the paper. I interviewed Bob Jackson, the photographer, and I wrote a story with his byline on it. I saw the rifle sticking out the window. Then I interviewed a traffic officer who was on Kennedy's left, and interviewed him and wrote a story with his name on it. So we spent the rest of the day following up uh, rumors and trying to get the facts straight. Was he by any chance the gentleman that was pointing up? No, he was on a motorcycle. Oh, okay. We also spent the rest of the night tracking down rumors and stories, most of which turned out not to be true. So that was your first response. You went back to the office and then interviewed the people that you could. It must have been a very powerful emotional experience. One of the problems we had was keeping the reporters in the field calm enough to get the facts straight and the people in the office calm enough to get them straight at the office. That Saturday night, I worked till about 11 o'clock in the office and I had a sinus infection and a fever, so they sent me home, and I was supposed to come back on Monday. 
Well, when Ruby shot Oswald, everybody went back to work. And we were putting together a profile of Jack Ruby. And my job was to get with a Chicago newspaper, and I'd give them everything we found out about Ruby in Dallas. And they gave me everything they found out about Ruby in Chicago and Detroit, which was where Ruby was from. And they were able to get the county clerk in Wayne County to open up on Sunday and wow. give, give them records. So that was one of my jobs was to swap information with them for the profile of Ruby. Well, I have to say I've been to that sixth floor museum there at the School Book Depository building in Dealey Plaza. And I didn't expect to be affected so emotionally when I went through that. I felt myself tearing up looking at how they had it all set up and looking out the window and watching everything. It's quite emotional even today. It is. I gave all my press passes and memorabilia and notebook to the Sixth Floor Museum, so they have a Shelton collection. I have to go back now (laughs) and see that because it's really quite a comprehensive exhibit that they have. Now, along with that, I understand that President Kennedy had been warned because of the response that Adlai Stevenson got from the protesters when he had been visiting Dallas shortly before that, and that you covered that, you covered Adlai Stevenson, who, by the way, was the United States envoy to the United Nations, in case some of the listeners don't remember who he was, but you covered that visit of his. I did. I was assigned to cover his speech. And there were pickets and demonstrators outside. There was the John Birch Society and um, another right-wing group were picketing. And inside, they heckled him during his speech. Well, he made it through his speech, and he went backstage to visit with his hosts. My assignment was over because I'd covered his speech, but I noticed that the hecklers didn't leave. So I didn't leave, and he was in there backstage about 45 minutes, and when he came out, the hecklers were still there. man spat in his face, and a woman hit him with a sign, and it was, it was an international story. For that reason, and the fact that we were in competition with the Dallas News, we planned extensive coverage had a reporter and photographer everywhere because we didn't want to leave anything for the morning news. And Kennedy had been warned about the response that Stevenson got when he was visiting. Yeah. We never thought at all about an assassination, but we thought something like that might happen. Somebody might pick it against him or some other kind of incident. That's one reason we had blanket coverage. You also covered the trial of Jack Ruby in 1964, the man who actually assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald, who was in police custody after being charged with assassinating President Kennedy and murdering Dallas policeman J.D. Tippett. I did, and it was a real circus. The way it worked is the Times-Herald had a signed seat in the courtroom. Jack Ruby's lawyer who was a Los Angeles celebrity lawyer and just took the case for the publicity, sprung psychomotor epilepsy on us. 
Psychomotor epilepsy. That's why Ruby shot Oswald. He had psychomotor epilepsy. <laughs> what in the world is that? I didn't know then, and I don't know now. <laughs> but we all scrambled to find a psychiatrist to tell us what psychomotor epilepsy was. Yeah, I have never heard that no. before. The second day, Ruby's sister showed up with a gun in her purse. Oh, my <clears> word. And that set everybody off. At that point, nobody had been able to interview Ruby. We didn't know if he'd been hired by the communists or what. Mm -hmm. And we knew that there was going to be one question before the judge came in. Well, the Morning News did something pretty clever that didn't work out. They sent Tony Zoppi, their nightclub editor, because Ruby had a nightclub, and they knew that if Ruby recognized anybody, it would be Zoppi. Well, it turned out right. They brought Ruby in, and it was just a brief time before the judge came in. So there was only one question. We all had questions. And in the meantime, they had changed the name of Ruby's nightclub. And Zoppy's question to Ruby was, Jack, what do you think about them changing the name of your nightclub? Are you serious? <laughs> now, I'm assuming the one question would be, why? Who paid you to do it? Who paid yeah. you to do it? Absolutely right. And Nobody got a chance to ask that no, then, huh? and we pounded on him, and <laughs> the judge came in, and nobody could ask another question. Zoppy ended up as a PR person in Las Vegas. Definitely not a reporter anymore, no. I should hope. Henry Wade prosecuted the case himself. He was the district attorney, and he wanted to prove that Ruby's attorney, whose name was, was Belli, that he wasn't from around here. So Henry kept calling him Mr. Belli. And Mr. Belli asked the judge to admonish Henry to call him by his right name. Henry said, Your Honor, I will call Mr. Belli by his right name, and I will take him out to lunch and get him some spaghetti. <laughs> so that was an adventure. You were present during some very monumental times in the history of the United States. Very emotional. I can, I can only imagine, can only imagine. Now, going forward to 1966, as a Denton Record Chronicle reporter, you also interviewed Warren Beatty yeah. at Pilot Point, not far from here, not far from Denton, while he was on location shooting the film Bonnie and Clyde. Right. And the movie I read was actually premiered at the Campus Theater in Denton with many locals participating as extras in the filming. And I read in an old article about the movie that holding the premiere in Denton was very different from holding it in New York or Los Angeles because many of those attending had been alive during the Barrows gang crime spree and had known someone who had encounters with them because both Bonnie and Clyde were born in North Texas and were criminally active right here in this region. And that although there were cheers when people caught glimpses of people they knew in the movies, many were disappointed with the way their town, families, and friends had been portrayed. And you were quoted as saying, and I quote, 
A sobered audience filed out of the campus theater after the premiere, each person forming their own opinion of the film, but most were in agreement that it was not your ordinary crime movie. What did you mean by that? Well, the final scenes were very bloody. Bonnie and Clyde were both shot many times, and that was the first time that kind of violence was filmed. I had lunch with Warren Beatty while they were filming, and I wanted to talk to him about the business part of it. He was one of the first stars to have an interest in the business side of it. He wasn't interested in talking about that at all. But he found out I knew Lyndon Johnson, and that opened him up. And we talked and talked and talked about Lyndon Johnson. You know, his sister was part of the Kennedy family. The director came over and says, we got to go back to work. And Beatty kept wanting to talk about politics. So you knew Lyndon Johnson? Oh, yeah, I covered him. I covered five different presidents. My goodness. You really have been present in a lot of important <laughs> Historical times. times. Yeah, absolutely right. What did the people think about the Barrow Gang then? Were they looking at them like the Robin Hood heroes, or were they also were they looking at them as criminals than murderers? I think both. Some of the older people thought they were Robin Hoods. Younger people knew they were crooks and killers. Well, I guess those that had gone through the Depression, they were living a tough time in that neighborhood, and I. I had heard that the gang did give some money to the neighborhoods, is yeah, that right? Right. So that's why they were looking at them fondly? When Bonnie and Clyde was premiered, we did a special section about the movie, and they used that special section at Toronto when they were premiering it up there. The cast often went to the Ranchman Cafe in Ponder, and the Ranchman bought an ad in a special section Ranchman Cafe, Ponder, Texas, where the stars dine. <laughs> I had heard the rumor that the real Bonnie and Clyde had actually shot into that bank window on the corner. Is that yeah. is there any truth to that? Yes, and that bank is still there. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Michael J. Pollard, the funny little guy that was in the movie? Absolutely, I do. I asked him the standard question. Is there any particular part you've always wanted to play? Eleanor Roosevelt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I guess who doesn't want to be Eleanor Roosevelt at some point? (laughs) He was a funny guy. Well, the gas station slash home that Clyde Barrow's family lived in, when he, I think, kind of grew up there, didn't he? That's still there in Dallas. Yes, they're talking about preserving it, and some people well, think, great they idea. They were talking about tearing it down, Yeah, and everybody complained. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, it's a historical marker. Probably ought to be preserved, but... At UNT, you taught several notable Pulitzer Prize winners and finalists, and it's evident that you made quite an impression during your years as a faculty member at UNT School of Journalism because there is actually a Keith Shelton scholarship at UNT School of Journalism and it says, established by friends, former students, and fans of yours. Yes, it was very nice. (laughs) That's wonderful. Do you have any memories of some of the people that you taught that you'd like to share with us? 
Oh, yes. Of course, the Pulitzer winners, I remember very well. I taught a lab where the students had to cover public meetings, city council, school board, and so forth. And a couple of them didn't cover the meetings they were supposed to. So I gave them a C. And Mr. Schufer, the chairman of the department, asked me if I would reconsider because they had worked so hard on the daily. And I agreed to raise it to a B. And two of them were Pulitzer Prize winners. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrific. Now, what did you teach your students in terms of managing tight deadlines? And what did you do to manage the stress of tight deadlines? Well, Times Here was an afternoon paper. I went to work at 7.30 in the morning, and the first deadline was 8.45. Anything that had been in the morning news that we hadn't had, I had to confirm it and rewrite it by 8.45. So we had very tight deadlines. And you were working at a time when you didn't have the access that people have today. No cell phones. You couldn't get on the internet, jump on the internet. and no. con- Now, you used a very important word, confirm. Yeah. So how did you ensure your work was actually factual? Well, first I took very good notes. And if I had any questions, I would go back to the source and verify. And I always compared my final copy with my notes a second time and uh, tried to make sure everything was right. I made a speech at the Sixth Floor Museum once, and unbeknownst to me, they had my notebook from the day of the assassination, and the director read all my notes, and then he showed a film, and my notes were absolutely accurate. How and I was incredible. very, very pleased about that. That's really something... Now, with all the talk about fake news today, where people actually deliberately spread disinformation or hoaxes through traditional news media and through online social media, what do you think about that as far as the status of journalism today? I think it's terrible. I don't like the word media because people usually are talking about television. Newspapers are better edited. When I wrote a story, it went through the city desk for writing, and then it went through the copy desk for fact-checking, and it went through at least two or three editors. That doesn't happen on television. When was the last time you saw a correction on television? It certainly doesn't happen in social media. No. And it's so important because think of how many people just will look at a headline and think that's the truth or read something on some post or some blog and that then they run with that because they think that's so true. Well, I had to face my sources the next day and they let me know if I misunderstood something. That'd keep you honest, right? Right. Yeah. So you covered five other presidents. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's pretty incredible. Uh, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. I covered Mr. Truman when he visited Sam Rayburn at Baylor Hospital when Mr. Rayburn was sick. And when he came out, 
he walked at very fast pace and didn't answer questions or anything. So I was trotting along beside him. I said, Mr. President, how do you feel? How do I look? <laughs> <laughs> and how did you tell him he looked? <laughs> he was gone by then. <laughs> I covered Eisenhower when there was an open congressional election in San Antonio. That was when Henry Gonzalez ran the first time. And a man named John Good was the Republican candidate. And the Republicans brought Eisenhower down, thinking that all the military people in San Antonio would vote for the commander-in-chief. The Democrats had a free beer and tamale party. Uh-oh. In Gonzalez headquarters, they put up a sign, we drink good beer, we eat good tamales, we go to the polls and vote for Gonzalez. <laughs> they knew how to get to the people. The election wasn't even close. Of course, I covered Johnson from the time he was in the Senate. Johnson had a method of sending letters to reporters. And the first letter would be assigned to Keith Shelton and signed Lyndon Johnson. The second letter would be to Keith and Lyndon. The third one would say, you must come visit us at the ranch sometime. And the fourth letter would tell you when to come to the ranch. Johnson was in Pakistan. Everywhere he was, he acted like he was running for justice of the peace. He was shaking hands with everybody, and he was saying, you must visit us at the ranch sometime. Well, he met this Pakistani camel driver and said, you must visit us at the ranch sometime. Well, a nonprofit organization latched onto that, and they brought this Pakistani camel driver to Dallas. Well, they showed him around. They took him to Neiman Marcus and showed him all the clothes he couldn't afford. They took him to the grocery store and showed him all the groceries he couldn't buy. And when he left, they gave him a pickup. When he got back to Pakistan, he traded the pickup for another camel. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the stories made fun of him. And mine didn't. Good. So I got a letter from Lennon thanking for me for the way I handled the story. Good for you. That's very good. Now, you covered Nixon as well. Just one time. He was in Dallas for some reason. He was very cordial and answered my questions. This was nothing newsworthy. You have had a very interesting career, and you have met some of the most important people in our recent American history. And it's a great time to be a reporter in Dallas. Absolutely, and you've made quite a contribution to the field of journalism in your teaching, and it's just a real honor and pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you so very much for coming in. You're welcome. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Keith Shelton. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ali at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.